I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm honored to welcome our guest today, Michael Mondello. He is CEO and president of Seabear Smokehouse. Thank you so much for joining me today, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Let me ask you about the founding and inspiration for your smokehouse. Can you tell us about the history of Seabear? Sure. We are uh, proud to have a really long, rich heritage. Uh, the company was started back in 1957 by a fisherman named Tom Savage uh, up in Anacortes, Washington, which is about 75 miles north of Seattle, a small waterfront village. He uh, he came home one day and decided he was going to start smoking salmon and selling it to local taverns. So I met his wife when I joined in 96, and she told me the story that he came home and just poured a concrete slab in the backyard uh, over her tomato plants to build a backyard smokehouse. And uh, she was still angry about that and, uh, you know, decades later. Uh, and that's how he got into the business. He just decided he was going to do this and started using his family recipe, sold it to local taverns and, and uh, restaurants, and it grew in popularity. Um, and then he got asked to make it last longer. I guess they were serving it like, you know, kind of on the top of the bar and in, in big mayonnaise jars or something. That's how they were storing it. And so they said, it's selling well, but can you make it last longer? And normally you would smoke it longer or you would uh, use some sort of preservative. But he was apparently this really inventive guy and just loved to tinker with things. And so he played for years. That made him kind of inspired him. Played for years with an idea to make a flexible can. So we took flexible material, his was clear, and uh, combined it with a canning technology so that you could maintain the integrity of the filet, unlike shoving it into a can, and make it shelf stable. And he did that and got a patent for it in 71, uh, which the company enjoyed for a number of years. And that's really took it from this backyard smokehouse to now that you know one of the world's great regional food traditions, Northwest smoked salmon, could be taken by visitors up to the San Juan Islands in Washington. It could be shipped back to friends out east um, and on and on. And so it really kind of turned a corner to be uh, a business from just a sort of backyard operation. And uh, kind of fast forward, uh, he passed away in the mid-70s and um, a gentleman named Pete Cleland bought the business from Marie. And he saw the gift nature of this because it was shelf-stable and it was a high-end gourmet food. So he had, uh, he worked with Alcoa Aluminum to get a beautiful gold pouch, uh, uh, same technology with gold pouch, and had somebody design a box that uh, won awards and we still use today, a gift box, and sold it to Bloomingdale's out in New York and uh, Eddie Bauer and a few other big retailers. And uh, that's where the company really took off. And um, he won Small Businessman of the Year in Washington State, uh, in 1980, I think it was, and brought our salmon to the Reagan White House. And so it was kind of cool. Uh, you know, the company kept moving along that way. I joined in 96. And the quick summary was at that point, people loved the product, but they thought about us about five minutes a year. You know, they'd order for Christmas and they'd call up and you know, this is pre-internet <laughs> or right. The internet was just coming on. Uh, they'd call up and they'd place their order to send to their four or five friends or clients or whatever it is. They'd uh, hang up, they'd get nice thank you notes, and maybe they'd enjoy with themselves for uh, Christmas or Hanukkah. And then uh, they'd think about it the next November or December. 
And so our task was really to make this a year-round compelling brand. And we spent a lot of time fully expanding into all sorts of seafood experiences that people can enjoy uh, all, all year round. And uh, today that's what we are. So we still do everything like Tom Savage did. We still uh, buy super premium salmon and other seafood. We do it overwhelmingly by hand. It's really an artisan operation and, um, and in small batches, really small batches uh, and ship it around the country. So that's, we came from a backyard and uh, today we're certainly bigger than that, but it's all the same principles. Mike, tell our listeners about the experience of a business in the Northwest during the pandemic. We've hosted a number of innovative entrepreneurs in the culinary and food industry like yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to mm-hmm. zero in on the regional dimensions because we have not hosted folks from the Northwest. And I am huh. here to hear your perspective on that. Sure. Uh, so I think like everyone, you know, we immediately, well, first of all, just whether, regardless of what part of the country you're in, our first task was to come together as a team and say, well, we got to start, we got a first job is to stay safe so we can keep operating and the moral obligation to our employees, right? And uh, the team did an unbelievable job of taking our operation and making it, you know, distancing people and building, building in, and we were months ahead of other other uh, companies and what they were doing. So we did a great job being able to know that we could keep everyone safe and keep operating. Um, this is a food centric area, as I, I know you know, and uh, there's a lot of food companies here, whether it's uh, people like us or, um, you know, the great restaurant scene, food delivery, and there's a lot of, and, and so it was kind of, um, of course, everyone was scared and nervous about what this is going to be and how do we, how do we uh, set ourselves up for success. But there was a lot of innovation going on in the area people were pivoting really well. And so there was kind of a, you know, we were in an environment where uh, us and our, our peers and friends in the business all were looking at this and saying, you know what, this is horrible, but we're, we're not just looking to survive. We're looking to thrive. And uh, so every decision we make, we want to make sure that it gets us to the next month, but it also sets us up for success for the, the next decade. And that was the mindset we took. Uh, we pivoted uh, pretty quickly. Uh, we've always had a direct-to-consumer business that was a very important part of our company. But um, we obviously, people were buying food online. Uh, uh, you know, you, you didn't have to do a good job and you could have grown. But I think we did a lot of things really smart and we threw gas on that fire. We offered things that were uh, compelling to people in the world that they were living in at the moment. We talked to them, I think, in a really good way. Um, we had to do that because our food service business went to about zero, right? Uh, but we, so we, we pivoted and threw all the resources against this uh, the direct-to-consumer side, and we got into a cadence that was, uh, you know, reaching out and talking to our customers every three or four days, and we didn't want to c- talk to them unless we had something new and compelling to say. And I got to tell you, it was, uh, we've always been pretty nimble. We're a small company, but it was so cool to see um, the CR team make things happen overnight and just, you know, the attitude of, yep, we're going to do this because it's going to help us survive right now and thrive in the long term. And so many cool ideas came out of that. Um, one of them, I think we've shared with you are a little welcome to the smokehouse. Um, and so there's a, you know, that was, that was what was great here. And as I looked around at our peer companies, we had a few, um, a few kind of group calls with six or seven of my, who I consider uh, close friends in the industry who are also in artists and food businesses. And we were all feeling the same thing, but we were all inspired by one another because again, this is a, uh, 
wonderful combination of a culinary center and a center that, and, you know, Seattle is just known for innovation. So um, that's how we got through it. Mm -hmm. Was the transformation over the past year in terms of the importing and availability of product? Um, no, great question. Um, the product supply chain for us on raw material, first of all, we're buying overwhelmingly from Alaska, as you mentioned. Uh, we have some special niche things we buy outside that. Um, they were able to keep the product supply coming fairly well. Um, and so we, I think we, we uh, weathered that storm better than perhaps others because we got some really deep relationships with folks built up over the years that know the kind of quality we're looking for. And, and you know, we're not a, a major buyer of seafood, but we buy at a high end and people like working with us for that reason, because they're proud to be associated with, you know, specialty brand. Uh, so our relationships helped us there. Uh, we didn't see any major disruptions. I'll tell you one thing that was uh, and continues to be a challenge for us is at retail, Seafood did well at retail, as everything did at retail stores. Uh, within that segment, crab exploded. People were treating themselves, you know, not going out to dinner or they're, you know, just getting some takeout. So they used that disposable income to treat themselves. And they were buying crab, which is an expensive, uh, obviously an expensive treat, at retail. And so the availability of crab, uh, we buy a lot of king crab and Dungeness crab from this region. And uh, that became the one that was probably the most challenging and certainly the biggest impact on price. Uh, but overwhelmingly, uh, there were no major disruptions. Now, get outside of the main raw material and you start getting into packaging um, and other components. And that has been um, a real, that's been a nine month challenge. Absolutely. Uh, that's been the, the harder part for a company like us. You have particular certification process that enables you to preserve quality. When it comes to two of your specialties, salmon and halibut, how do you go about that process? So I think you're, uh, you're referencing our uh, SQF certification, which is a, uh, a worldwide sort of world quality, uh, high, really high quality level of food safety and, and quality. And uh, we're really proud to be a SQF certified. It's called, uh, that is a, if you have come out this way, I'll take you on a tour. You wouldn't believe the intensity of what it takes to be certified at that level. Um, it took us, you know, four or five years to get ready for that certification. We always produced, you know, high quality, safety, safe food. But to pass these hurdles, it's everything. You have to have this incredible documentation that says this is what we do everywhere to be outstanding. And then you have to do it. And then you have to be able to track that you've done it and prove it to anybody at any time. And in fact, right now, as you and I are talking, we're waiting for our annual certification. And this year is a surprise visit, so we don't know when they come. But uh, when the auditor gets there, it's going to be three days of him walking around and checking our plan and checking what we're doing against that plan and talking to employees. And, you know, if we say we train our employees on X, Y, and Z, he's going to make sure we train our employees on X, Y, and Z um, and on and on. And I'll tell you, just to give you an example of the thoroughness of this kind of certification, the first year we got certified uh, after day one, I talked to my team and said, how did it go? You know, how are we, how are we doing? And they said, Oh, we're doing really well, but there was one, we got dinged on one thing. There was a, cigarette butt on the 
loading dock. And I mean, I almost came unglued. I mean, that's not acceptable on any level, right? I'm, and they're like, no, 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 no. You've passed it a thousand times. I said, what are you talking about? And I went out there and there's a post, there's a pipe that goes into our, it was when, oh, years ago, when the uh, loading dock was open, someone had apparently, th you know, put a cigarette butt down that probably 15 years ago. And it's, you know, 20 feet down on the ground, but there was no cap on the top of the thing. And the auditor walked over, looked and said, ding, and dinged us for a point on the certification. I mean, that kind of incredible thoroughness. Uh, and and so we're happy that they do that because now that we're certified, we know it's harder for other people to get certified. And it also really speaks to um, how, you know, we have gotten way better, way better as an organization by by being SQF certified. What about the actual quality of the fish itself? Uh, I know about the preservation traveling mm -hmm. long distances, but mm -hmm. um, when, when you think of the process of... yeah. So we, it starts with the raw material, right? It's, it, it's, if you're not buying world-class raw material, you can't make world-class food. So we start by buying, spending a lot of money on the fish and crab we buy. Then uh, we have our small batch process. At the end of everything that gets produced, we, do an in, we have an internal team of certified tasters that will taste the product and score it. And if it doesn't score what it needs to score, then we put it aside and figure out what went wrong and, and all that. Uh, it, once it gets through that and we know it's excellent product and we ship it to consumers, we uh, survey every direct-to-consumer purchase made with us. We follow up with a survey. We get extremely high um, compliance on that. And I don't know if you've heard of the term net promoter score, but it's a, a measure of uh, brand strength that's used by a lot of big name companies. And um, if you look it up on if you google it you'll see and like costco and nordstrom and apple and on and on um, use it and they publish their numbers and uh, we have a chart that we share at all of our all company meetings and i've shared externally where all those world-class companies numbers are there and then ours is there above every one of them except for usaa the financial services company uh, that works with the military we are scoring at world-class levels we don't have anywhere near the number of customers they do but our customers are as thrilled with our products as they are, you know, as theirs are. And so that's how we measure the quality after the fact. So it starts with the quality in, we test during the production process, and then we measure afterwards to make sure that we, uh, that we did what we said we we're gonna do. When it's being assessed on the basis of freshness and taste, how subjective is that? Um, you know, we do know in general what good, fish would taste like, but I right. wonder if there's a, an even higher echelon or criteria for assessing it. That's, that's a great question. We, um, we train a group of tasters. That's where you get your little certifi uh, certified taster badge to be looking for the attributes, you know, whether it's, um, you know, like you said, a fresh, a taste of freshness, it's flavor, it's, it's texture, it's moistness, uh, it's smoke product, it's smoke level and saltiness and all the, you know, there's different elements for each product. So they're trained on that. And we do, you know, we uh, make sure that everyone understands, hey, if you don't like halibut, it doesn't matter. Uh, we don't want you to score it low because you hate halibut. You've got to judge it against these criteria or vice versa. If you love, you know, halibut, you still have to judge against these criteria. So there's that training piece. We do open up our tasting to anybody at the plant. 
So anybody, even if you're not a certified taster, is welcome to come by and score the products. And we do that to engage the team in it. And we look for their comments, but those don't get rolled into our official numbers. So the people that we're looking at, it's it's always going to be objective. I mean, uh, subjective, as you say, uh, but we try and build as much objectivity into it through the training. What is um, the process for the for the smoking itself once you have the fish and and as you said, most of your fish does come from Alaska. Yeah. So there's, you know, we, we fillet it. We, uh, we will brine it. It depends on the salmon uh, and whether we're making a traditional Northwest smoke, which is fully cooked, or a lox product, which is uh, cured but not cooked. So we have different brines and cures that we use with them. Um, so it goes through that process. Then it sits for a while so that it begins to get a what's called a pellicle on top, the little harder part of the smoked salmon. And then for every product we make, we have small, we have uh, pretty small smokers, but we do have them um, tied to computer programs. So it's a question of uh, time and temperature. And we have optimized that over the years. So we know there's a formula for if we're making our beer garden smoked salmon that goes in and it's, uh, uh, it may start with uh, no heat and uh, just air blowing, and then it goes into smoke coming in, and then the heat goes up. I mean, it's a very um, it's a very specific formula for that particular product and what we're looking to get out of it. And then during the process, uh, our smoke master will go in and open the door and look and maybe pull one out and taste it and make sure, because even though we have built in as much science as you can, it's still an art. And um, so, uh, all of those pieces come together to make the smoking uh, happen the way we want it to happen. And, you know, the other variable is the wood. And we overwhelmingly use a, uh, a blend of hardwoods and fruit woods that uh, we developed ourselves. It's, uh, it allows for a subtler smoke. We don't like a heavy smoke. We think the salmon should be the hero and the smoke should enhance it. And and oftentimes smoked salmon, uh, the first thing you get hit with is a smoke flavor. And we, we think the opposite is what makes a really great culinary experience. So we, you know, use that wood. And so all those elements have to come together. So it's a mixture of both uh, science and, like I said, uh, some magic, <laughs> if you will. And what have you found over the course of this past year to be the most popular items that people are coming back for? Yeah, uh, I think it went in, uh, in phase this is Alexander. It's been really interesting. Uh, right, you know, a year ago, right now, we sold. We we've always had this item called ready to eat wild salmon in our take anywhere pouch. So it's three and a half ounces cooked salmon in a pouch, flaked, so it's not a big fillet. Easy to just open and eat. It's been taken to the top of Mount Everest, for example. It's a great, you know, it's great. Um, it's always been one of our top sellers. It exploded a year ago because that was. Shelf stable protein. People were worried about shopping, right? And they just loaded their pantries. Um, then, as we got in, we got past that sort of panic stage of last year. We really started promoting ways for people, and even talking to people in a way that you know they weren't going out, and they were people were going a little nuts at home. And so we offered some culinary experiences that you could have with just you and a spouse or other loved one or a couple of you, whatever. And uh, we did different crab offerings. Uh, we have something on our site now called our Pacific Northwest Crab Roll Experience, where you can make these amazing little crab rolls uh, using Alaskan king crab and Dungeness crab and 
these cool rolls we get from a local bakery and stuff. And those are, you know, so there's a way to enjoy a really high-end culinary experience at home for about what you'd pay if you go out for takeout. Uh, but but you got to do a little something. It wasn't just, you know, it didn't get delivered to you fully cooked. You do a little. So that it went into that phase where people really wanted to uh, have a great restaurant quality meal at home and uh, and not for 20 for, you know, two to four people. And then as you got into holiday, I think it changed again. People, you know, people weren't traveling as obviously traveling as much. And so there was a real desire to share experiences. And so things like we did a Christmas morning breakfast in a box, we called it. And people sent that to loved ones around the country and said, you know, have a great Christmas. We wish we could be there on Christmas morning with you. We can't have a great breakfast with this. Even we've even heard from customers where they may have sent one to, you know, a couple of sons and then they bought one for themselves and they all got together on a Zoom and had breakfast. So that was really important at the holiday time. And that's what I think when I, I said earlier, I think we did well. I really feel like we did well is talking to people at their what they needed. And, um, uh, you know, we didn't we didn't come out with a uh, oh gloom and doom and we didn't make light of it. It's just, hey, here's how we're living today, and we have some solutions for you. And I think that uh, that worked really well. When you focus in regionally on the industries that were most affected in Washington and mm -hmm. Oregon and Alaska, if we were to consider that the mm -hmm. northwest of the United States in, in essence, um, mm -hmm. has there been an equitable impact uh, in, in all three areas, or, or would you say that uh, – Washington has suffered more than, than Oregon and, and Alaska, or, or is it across the board? Uh, I don't see anything that would suggest that any part of our Northwest region has been, uh, certainly not in our world, uh, but even, you know, we, we study a lot of the companies around here and look for trends and stuff. I, we haven't seen anything much different. I think there's been, you know, equitable pain, and I've also been equally impressed uh, with, like I said, some of the uh, the really smart pivoting that's been done by some companies out here to uh, to get through it. I know you do import a significant amount of seafood from Alaska, but what are the differences in terms of quality and supply in in the you know Alaskan waters compared to the Northwest, you know, like the Washington waters? Yeah. Well, the Alaskan, uh, we love Alaska for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's home to some spectacular seafood you can't get anywhere else in the world. Alaskan king crab, um, the wild, uh, wild salmon of Alaska, some halibut. I mean, you can get halibut outside of Alaska, but I mean, it is, the quality is amazing. The second reason we love Alaska is they are, and they have for 45, 50 years now, been incredibly great stewards of their natural resource. So they manage the fisheries there with an eye towards sustainability and environmental responsibility, uh, I really at a, just a spectacular level. So for example, uh, the crab fishery runs, uh, the, uh, the Golden King crab fishery runs, I think it's October through kind of April or May, right? But it's done by quota. And if they, if they caught their quota by tomorrow, that fishery is shut down. And so they said, you can catch X amount. And we know if you catch X amount, that's not going to hurt the fishery. And once you catch X amount, it's over. And so they take the, and 
I can give you a hundred examples like that. So we can buy from Alaska with confidence that we are buying a well-managed, sustainable natural resource. Is that true outside of Alaska? It is in some places, but it's not as pervasive. Um, there are spots, we buy a little bit out of Washington for special events, and we buy um, uh, occasionally from Canada out of special events, and they're always well-managed resource, but it's not as consistent. Um, I'll give you, you know, one example. We do a thing during the summer called Fresh and Wild, where we end up featuring somewhere between 12 and 15 independent events where we'll say, hey, we're we're offering fresh uh, Yakutat sockeye from the Yakutat region of Alaska. Place your order. We're only selling 300 orders. And once we get 300 orders, we get the fish in, fillet it, and send it out fresh. It's super fresh, remarkably fresh fish. It's really a cool program. Well, we've done that outside of Alaska. We do one here uh, in Washington um, with a fishery that catches in an incredibly sustainable way called uh, reef netting. And we love that. We feature that every year. Uh, so we find those other fisheries like that, but I mean, it's overwhelmingly Alaska for the reasons I talked about. The conservation of our oceans and wildlife, uh, specifically mm -hmm. the quality of, of the oceans right now. You've been in this business for some time. What are your concerns about the quality of our oceans and the protection of, of our oceans in, in terms of being able to sustainably uh, catch what you do and yes. provide the, the the culinary service you do, but also do it in a sustainable, environmentally conscious way? Well, I think the, the primary answer is the market drives that, is driving it. Um, consumers just expect expect us to be buying from sustainable sources and, and operating in a sustainable way. And so I think the market pressure on the sea bears of the world, all the people who are competitors and all the big grocery chains, every, the pressure's on them. Um, and, and so the market is uh, really driving that. And I think that will, uh, I feel good about the future for that reason. The other thing I'd say about, uh, being confident in the sustainability for, you know, long after I'm not at Seabear. Um, farmed fish, which have got a bad name uh, in this part of the country, a lot of people are, you know, I mean, they're, they're wild fish fans, right? But around the countries, you know, Whole Foods sells farmed fish. I mean, farmed fish can be done well or not well. Um, when it's done well, and we buy some for another, a second brand in our company uh, from you know, responsible farms. Uh, and there's a trout we, we are working with that's got a world-class environmental story. Uh, it's farmed. It's farmed in uh, Magic Valley in Idaho. Um, the ones that do it well, then that opens up. It takes pressure off the natural stocks of wild fish. And they can live in harmony together. And over time, I think if you fast forward 15 years, there will be a very broad recognition that eating well and eating right, eating responsibly seafood is going to be, uh, there's going to be great choices in wild and there's going to be great choices in farm. There already are, but I think the, the, the pervasiveness and the uh, market awareness of that will be better. Michael Mondello of Seabear, president and CEO. Thank you so much for your story and your insight today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us.